The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. sermon text tonight comes from Matthew 2, another birth narrative of the Lord Jesus. Hear God's word. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. When Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared, and he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go, and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word, that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest, over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold... An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod... When he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. This is God's word. Let us pray. Father, we would ask tonight that the words of my mouth and the meditations of each of our hearts might be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock 
and our Redeemer. Amen. On June 6, 1944, known as D-Day of World War II, Allied forces launched the greatest air, land, and sea invasion in the history of the world. More than 160,000 troops bombarded a 50-mile, heavily fortified French coastline to fight the Nazis of Germany along the beaches of Normandy. General Dwight D. Eisenhower spoke about this operation, calling it a crusade in which we will accept nothing less than full victory. This mission required more than 5,000 ships, 13,000 planes, and by day's end, the Allied forces had established a foothold on the European continent. Over 9,000 men would be killed and wounded, a sacrifice so that 100,000 more men might begin the long and slow slog towards defeating Adolf Hitler and his forces. This massive invasion was necessary to defeat one of the greatest tyrants of the 20th century. The Allied forces spent many months with wise and careful planning to better secure success and preserve the element of surprise. The forces needed to build up its power and its arms in order to break through the enemy's entrenched resistance. Allied forces were motivated by a love for freedom, a desire to liberate millions oppressed and to end the deaths of millions more in concentration camps and on battlefields. Human nature. What the Bible calls our hearts are like Nazi-occupied Europe. We in our sin nature needed a grand invasion from God. It was us who need the Spirit of God to break through the barbed wire and machine gun defenses of our own selfishness. The grand invasion of God at Christmas came not with tanks, bombers, and warships, but a one-man army born to save his people from the tyranny of sin. Our text tonight compels us not to resist, but rather embrace the grand invasion of God which demonstrates his wisdom, power, and love. Our text informs us that Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod. Well, who was Herod? We know from history that Herod had inherited Roman-backed power from his father, and he was declared king of the Jews by Roman ruler Octavian in 40 B.C., The irony was that Herod was not Jewish. He was an Edomite, and he married a Jewish woman of ruling class to gain legitimacy. Herod did many things, many great things, by squashing rebellions, constructing grand building projects, and beginning a refurbishment of the Temple of Jerusalem in 19 B.C. He was notoriously paranoid a ruthless ruler who killed and murdered a Jewish high priest, his own favorite wife, his wife's mother, and even three of his own sons. Herod died to no one's regret in 4 B.C., 
which places the date of the birth of Christ between 6 and 4 B.C. Our text also tells us that wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Who were these wise men? Well, we understand that the Magi, as the literal text says, date back to at least the 6th century B.C., They were a priestly and political class of astronomers, of dream interpreters and advisors who had great power and influence in the courts of Babylon, Persia, and even the Parthian Empire of Jesus' day in the east. They're mentioned among the wise men in the book of Daniel, and we're very likely familiar with the Hebrew scriptures. Our text also mentions the curious star that drew these wise men to Palestine. Many scholars throughout the years have offered natural and supernatural explanations for this phenomenon. One of the best natural explanations is the historic fact that on May 27th, 7 BC, astronomers observed a rare conjunction of the planets Jupiter and Saturn lining up with the stars of the constellation Pisces, the fish. A little while later, history records that Chinese and Korean astronomers observed a supernova in March and April of 5 BC. One Christian astronomer offers us a theory that the planets and the stars alerted the Magi to this special event, and that the supernova triggered their journey. It is an interesting theory. But we know that God works in his own mysterious ways. Numbers 24, 17 tells us in prophetical words that a star would come out of Jacob. Revelation 22:16 refers to Christ as the bright morning star. It is God's prerogative to reveal himself, to reveal his glory, even through a supernatural light to draw these guest observers from the east. Well, the Magi at this time were not the only ones expecting some great act of God. The Roman historian Suetonius wrote, there had spread over all the Orient an old and established belief that it was fated at that time for men coming from Judea to rule the world. At the same time, Roman historian Tacitus wrote, There was a firm persuasion that at this very time the East was to grow powerful and rulers coming from Judea were to acquire a universal empire. Later, Jewish historian Josephus wrote that many Jews at this time believed that one from their own country would soon become ruler of the entire earth. Well, the Magi come to Jerusalem assuming it to be the seat of power to provide them directions to go to the place to witness this one born king of the Jews. It's likely that the pictures of three men on camels dating back to the Middle Ages is inaccurate. It's far more likely that there were many magi accompanied by many slaves and even soldiers. They would have traveled at least 900 miles coming from the center of the Parthian Empire, modern-day northeastern Iran. The Parthians were not friendly with Herod, who had driven the Parthians out of Palestine just decades prior. And so, when the wise men come to Herod's court and announce their intention to worship or pay homage to this one born king of the Jews, 
they may have intentionally been trying to provoke Herod. And provoked he was. Verse 3 reveals that he was troubled in all of Jerusalem, knowing his temper were troubled with him. Were the Parthians picking a fight with Palestine? Well, that's not likely with Rome having firm control over the territory. Herod consults his own wise men, the priests and the scribes, those members of the Sanhedrin, the ruling religious class, and the Pharisees, experts in the law, inquiring about this birth of the Christ. And they give him a clear answer, quoting to Micah 5, verse 2, that tells clearly that the Christ would be born from Bethlehem, the city of David. True wisdom might have provoked genuine interest out of Herod, even the priest and the scribes, to go see for themselves this great event. Bethlehem was less than six miles away from Jerusalem. The Magi had traveled over 900 miles. Yet Herod and his counselors did not venture to go out a mere six miles. Instead, Herod summons these wise men in secret out of earshot of the Jews to inquire about the time that this star had appeared in the sky. He then sends them on their way, instructing them to report back under the pretense that he would come to and worship this child. Well, you know the rest of the story. How the Magi traveled but a short distance away, led by this peculiar star rising over the very house where Joseph, Mary, and the child were now dwelling. And it says of these wise men that they rejoiced. They worshiped the Christ child. They laid before him costly gifts fit for a king, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And they are warned in her dream from God to avoid Herod to venture home by another way. An angel also then informs Joseph of Herod's evil plot, instructing him to take Mary and the baby to Egypt. At that time in Alexandria, there dwelled a million Jews so that Joseph and his family would easily find refuge and work for the time needed before they could return after Herod's death. And as the text tells us, Herod reacted with venomous rage. Having been duped by the Magi, he orders his troops to slaughter every little boy aged two and under, which would have numbered in the dozens in a town of about a thousand Herod at this time was about 70 years old and would die within the year. What does a 70-year-old man have to fear about a newborn baby? Well, the man opposed to the will of God has everything to fear. I want to walk us through this passage again. And we might consider the wisdom and the power and the love of God through this great invasion. God in his wisdom sent his son at the right time in history, when the greater Roman world enjoyed a measure of peace unknown in prior centuries. Jesus' own disciples and the apostle Paul would have freedom to travel safely under Roman protection with all the advantages of a common culture, a common language, a common currency, and the efficiency of excellent transportation. God displays his wisdom by outsmarting a devious king 
first provoking him with the Magi's arrival, <coughs> and then directing the Magi and even Joseph how to outmaneuver this evil king. Verse 16 reveals that Herod was furious when he learned that he had been tricked by these wise men. <coughs> but note that he was not tricked by men, but tricked by God. God was wise to fulfill ancient prophecy. We have three fulfillments of prophecy in our very text. <coughs> and God is also all wise to offer in this counter a preview of the Christ's final mission. The tragedy of these Hebrew boys who lost their lives <coughs> gave Herod the satisfaction of assuming he had eliminated this threat. But in the end, he was fooled by the wisdom of God. Some 30 years later, religious leaders, provoked by Satan himself, thought that they were doing away with this itinerant preacher and miracle worker, condemning him to die on a Roman cross. But in the wisdom of God, their actions completed his mission, established by father and son from eternity past. The wisdom of God to fulfill his plan of eternal redemption. The wisdom of Jesus outwitting his enemies, trying to trap him with questions. Remind us to trust in God's wisdom and not resort to our own. Herod's lack of wisdom reminds us that human rulers are sorely lacking in wisdom. Our rulers cannot solve our greatest problems. Poverty. They cannot fix climate change or correct their spending habits or fully protect us from a threat of terror. The indifference of the scribes and the priests, who likely were in league with Herod or not wanting to rock the boat with this ruler, reminds us that many advisors are oftentimes cowards who prefer to play it safe and not act on their conviction. Knowledge and right answers, but a failure to act is not wisdom. True wisdom requires us to trust and to obey God at his word, exemplified by these God-fearing Gentiles from another land, by Jesus' own human parents. Mary and Joseph lacked the wisdom to outwit King Herod and the religious elite, but they trusted God's wisdom to guide them to protect them, to provide for them. You and I must admit our lack of wisdom, our inability to rule ourselves, to embrace the invasion of God, that he might realign our hearts according to his desires, to submit ourselves to his will to be the kind of people of love, joy, and peace that pleases him. Well, Herod's display of cruelty and power were no more impressive than an Egyptian pharaoh who long ago ordered the killing of boy, baby boy Hebrews by tossing them into the Nile River in the days of Moses. Insecure men are easily provoked by threats to their own power. From history, we know another example of mad abuse of power by Herod 
in the days prior to his death, he ordered the incarceration of several distinguished members of Jerusalem society and ordered that they be killed on the day of his death to guarantee that there would be mourning in the city of Jerusalem. In contrast to the weak power of men, we find the invading power of Almighty God who sent his son born of a virgin, fulfilling dozens of predictive ancient prophecies, bold enough to have his son born right under the lion's nose in Judea. When Jesus came of age, he went out in the Spirit's power to heal diseases, cast out demons who spoke with true authority. He demonstrated his power by raising the dead and dictating the terms of his own death, after which his father raised him from the dead with true resurrection power and glory. Herod's power was a false power, like President Assad of Syria, who has now engulfed his country in civil war, creating four million refugees, like the leaders of North Korea and Iran, who try to blackmail the rest of the world with nuclear power threats. Sinful men cannot handle power. It corrupts. And the same is true for us in our little worlds, the little kingdoms that you and I try to rule. We also fear the invasion of God. We dread the giving up of our idols and our idol comforts. We often live with the facade of control over our chaotic lives. You and I must surrender to the grand invasion of God like Rahab, who saw the almighty power of Israel's God and switched sides pledging her allegiance to the true God to save herself and her family. You and I must open the gate to let in the invading power of God to take over. But surrender does not come easily. In 1945, as Allied bombings over Japan were met with less and less resistance because Japanese factories could not keep up and could not produce enough defensive armaments to protect their people. It also became increasingly evident that the Japanese emperor would not yield or surrender, regardless of the terms. Japanese government warned their citizens of impending invasion and ordered them to prepare to fight to the last man, woman, and child. These factors led President Truman and his advisors to order the dropping of two atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. The deaths of more than 120,000 people and the prospect of even greater devastation over the grand population center of Tokyo compelled the emperor of Japan to finally yield and render unconditional surrender. Unconditional surrender is hard to come by. But it is what is needed to yield to an almighty, overwhelming power. The power of God for our good. But we know that power 
alone, though it can force surrender, cannot change the heart. We need something more than power. We need love. In our story, we've seen the invading wisdom and power of God, and finally, his great love for lost sinners. God sent his own son into a world of pagan darkness, a world filled with hostile and cruel tyrants, corrupt world, where even religious leaders jockeyed for power and position, uncaring towards the weak and the vulnerable. Scripture says that God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son, that he did not spare his own son, but freely offered him up for us. Romans 5, 8 says that God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus was tortured and mocked by those he came to save. Even as he uttered the word, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. After Japan surrendered, Louis Zamperini and fellow American prisoners of war were free to go home. But when Louis arrived home, he found that he was not free. Still tormented by the trauma he had suffered, the memories of barbaric torture at the hand of his captors, especially Officer Watanabe, who was nicknamed the Bird. For four years, Louis suffered restless sleep, was in a drunken rage and became resolved to return to Japan to kill the bird. Louis's desperate wife, close to giving up on their marriage, finally convinced Louis to attend with her a Billy Graham crusade in Los Angeles. Resentful and resistant at first, Louis came to embrace the invasion of God's forgiveness and love. The message of the gospel that Christ had died for his sins, to set him free from his own bondage and wrath. A year later, Louis returned to Japan, but not in an invasion of wrath, but on a mission of mercy. Louis sought out the guards, those who had tormented him, who are now prisoners of war, prisoners of war crimes, to share with them the love and the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. You and I do not need a mere UN peacekeeping mission. We need a massive invasion to overthrow our self-centered, self-protecting hearts. You and I need rescue from self-love. We need an invasion into our Nazi-infested hearts of pride and judgmentalism, hatred and self-righteousness, harshness, hypersensitivity, lacking empathy. Some of us are like prisoners of war, like those in bondage in concentration camps, in bondage to our insecurity, anxiety, Fear of man, doubt, and despair. Others of, us, others of us are like German SS officers who want freedom, who desire invasion, but find ourselves still serving 
the tyrant out of fear, feeling helpless. I invite you to switch sides. I invite you to assist, to allow the grand invasion of God into your life. Many marriages could use an invasion. Husband and wife stuck in trench warfare of criticism, stonewalling, of repeated failures of confession and repentance. Some of our workplaces could use invasion. Some of our family relations could use invasion. Perhaps a college student or young person home for the holiday break brings tension that could use the invasion of God's grace. We might learn to listen tenderly to understand one another. This new year, I challenge you to ask for God's invading wisdom, power, and love to transform you and your relationships. The book of Revelation offers two vivid images of the invasions of Christ. In chapter 12, we see a mother giving birth to a child with a dragon ready to devour the child before God delivers them. And then verse 19, the child matures and returns as a mighty warrior on a white horse ready to wreak vengeance on his enemies. The first invasion of Christ was meek, mild, and merciful. The next invasion of Christ will come with almighty wrath. The prophet Jeremiah counseled King Zedekiah, the last king of Judah, while armies of Nebuchadnezzar surrounded Jerusalem, that if he would yield and surrender, he would be shown mercy. But if he continued to rebel, he would receive wrath. You have the same choice. I implore you to surrender to God's gracious invasion of mercy and not continue to rebel to only receive his wrath. May you and I embrace the invading wisdom and power and love of God for our good and his glory. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, thank you for sending your Son on a great invading mission to deliver us. May we embrace your grace and your mercy may infiltrate and penetrate our hearts and lives, that we might be a people who reflect your grace and goodness before a watching world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.